Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Define University podcast, a space designed for educators to ignite your passion, transform your mindset, and learn to love who you are in the process. My name is Lindsay Titus, and I am here to share simple yet strategic steps each week with you to build your momentum into creating a life full of purpose and passion. The time is now. Let's dive on in to today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to another brand new episode of the Define University podcast. My name is Lindsay Titus, and I am your host for the episode, for the podcast, in all honesty. But today, I do have a guest with me that I'm super excited to dive into all things SEL with. So um, please welcome Elizabeth Merce to the podcast. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Absolutely. I, you know, we've connected um, a while ago now and definitely have been, um, you know, just, just helping each other on Instagram and you know, I, I was thinking about future topics, future um, just ideas that I wanted to bring the podcast. And SEL is one because it is one of the words right now. Um, and you are often my go-to person, um, especially because I'm going to say you bring a different mindset, but you definitely helped me in my mindset of what is SEL and how can I, you know, I think one of the things I love that you do is you allow me to expand my own mindset. So it's never, you know, this is right or wrong, but it's okay. Have you considered this? Have you considered that? So super excited to dive in. But before we do, can you just let the listeners know kind of a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you're from, all that good stuff? Absolutely. Um, like you said, my name is Elizabeth Mars. I have been a preschool and kindergarten teacher for a while. Um, note to the gray hair that your listeners can't see, thankfully. Um, it's fine. And I am president of SACOVA, which is our regional affiliate for NACI, the National Association for the Education of Young Children. Um, I run eMerge Learning on all platforms. So I try and put out information to help support parents and teachers, especially around the idea of hashtag Ditch the Clips. I started that hashtag a few years ago to help um, teachers and parents get rid of extrinsic or Awards, so things like clip charts and card systems and points and things like that, instead focus on social emotional skills and relationship building. So that's really where my passions lie. I'm also a mom and a wife, um, and I sleep every now and then. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> so that's a little bit about me. Awesome. So let's, I, I want to get to SEL, but let's, I love how you framed the ditch the clips concept. Um, and so I want to kind of start there. And I, I think that will then kind of lead us into where do we focus on, right? Because if I'm a new teacher and, or, or maybe a veteran teacher, you know, the, the clip charts, the points, the systems, they're out there, right? They're all out there. Um, and they're easy to see. They're easy to, to see. So if, if someone is listening that either has one or is thinking about creating one, has created one. Can you give us a little bit of your background in terms of why, again, going beyond that, that external reinforcement, why is it that you don't love those systems? And then I think that'll lead us into what to do instead. Absolutely. So first I want to say there's no shame in using them because it is something that has been historically used. It's been even, um, really supported and encouraged by some administrations. Like sometimes everybody in the building is using Dojo and Dojo is just a digitized clip chart. Um, and so there's a lot of places where you're actually told you have to. And I do suggest and, and support teachers and modifications you can make where you're still checking the box for your own job, um, that you're making modifications that are better for students. 
Um, I started to really detest them when I started to look more at child development um, and start to see how kids respond to different support strategies and what was helpful for them and then also what was harmful. So really looking at that early childhood space. But then as I started to look at adult motivation, as I started to support adults as a mentor or um, different job roles I had there, I was like, wow, we're not that far apart from what our littles need. And so really realizing that when we just punish, we're ignoring the missing skill. Um, it oftentimes exacerbates problems. And even those, you know, air quote here, like high flyers, those kids that are always on green, those kids that always have the points, they're really suffering as well because that perfectionism, that anxiety. Um, I know people who are like, I was always on green except for that one time. Um, or they might've had parents that punished them um, way after the fact for getting on yellow or orange or red or whatever. Um, and that wasn't necessarily beneficial for them changing that behavior and, and having a better outcome later. So then I started to dig more deeply into this and in books like Punished by Rewards, where they really lay out the research on why they're not beneficial. And so from there, I was able to change the mindset, not just of myself, but of others on why ditch, clip, ditch the clips. I can speak, it's fine. Uh, why ditch the clips is such an important idea, especially for early childhood, but also for all, all people. Um, I think this time of year, um, as school starts to, to start up, um, there's a lovely picture by my friend, John. He did a, um, a staff meeting and he put a clip chart up and really kind of showed his staff what that feels like. Because I think sometimes we get so far removed from kiddos that we forget what it feels like to be called out. And we think that we're doing a teaching moment, a teachable moment where we're all learning together when instead it's just punishment in front of our peers. And once we start to feel that shame or that embarrassment, it, we start to really understand how that's not a good learning environment. You're not going to feel like you can take a risk, like you can learn academically when you have that shame or that fear and that embarrassment with your peers. Yeah, no, I love it. And I love that you brought up, it's kind of both ends of the color, color spectrum, if you will. Um, I mean, my daughter, I'll, I'll use an example from her. So she in kindergarten, her classroom had, had the cards, had the, <laughs> had the green, yellow, red cards. And, you know, all year I tried really hard to like hit that send button. And that's an area that, you know, it's, it's one area that I'm like, I don't, I don't necessarily regret. Cause that was, that was the year COVID happened too. So I'm kind of glad I didn't push that, push that button, but now it's giving me a little bit more fuel. You know, if, if second grade teacher uses one, I'm, I'm ready to say something and to just say, hey, have you considered, right, those conversations? But the, the challenge I had with it, in addition to everything you said and seeing it play out in her is that she is, she's a good kid, right? She's not, she is on green. But her challenge came, they also did, um, which I love, they do zones check-ins every day. So they do the, the green, yellow, red, uh, blue check-ins. And she had made a comment a couple of times, you know, well, I always just mark green. I'm like, okay, but what if you're not in the green zone? Like, what if you're, cause she gets worried. She has nerves. She, she gets upset sometimes. I'm like, she's what if human, so right? she's, she's human, <laughs> she is human. Yes. Um, and she's like, well, I just mark green. And I'm like, but, but, Honey. And we, so we have a conversation about it. And ultimately it comes out that yellow and red on this chart are bad, right? She doesn't want to be on, on yellow and red. So even though, you know, she knew it's feelings in her mind, she overgeneralized it, which fine. Yeah, absolutely. Kids do. Start to think that feeling worried or angry or anxious is bad. Mm -hmm. And in addition to labeling your own feelings, and once you've labeled them in a negative connotation, it's really hard to separate that. 
but then you're also negatively labeling students too. So especially on the charts that are visible to others, because I know a lot of people have tried to, well, it's okay because I moved it out of where the kids can see, but they start to label each other. This kid's always on red. This kid's always on green. This kid, I don't want him in my party because he's always on yellow. Um, you start to label the other kids and then they start to interact. So their social part of that social emotional learning isn't getting practiced because they're, oh, I don't want to play with him. He's on red. I'm going to end up on red, or I don't want to play with kids that are on red, or you're always on green. You're the goody goody. I don't want to be with you. My goody goodies were yet. You know, and like that stigmatizes a little bit and how kids interact. Um, and we, we don't want that, right? We don't want the kids to label themselves as a kid that's always on this. And we don't want them to label each other or even have the teacher have that in the back of their mind. Like, I know, you know, you're always on red. So I'm just going to mark that. Mm -hmm. So many labels yeah. and value judgments. Absolutely. And those, and those labels hurt, right? They do not help. Right. And that's, you know, it's one of the, those phrases I'm like, are we hurting or are we helping? Right. Like it's, it gets to be that simple. And I, and I do, I think, and I, but I love that you said, like, there are ways to make them work. They are, there are ways to make them happen. Um, but it's, I think off the bat, my, my biggest kind of like issue with them is the public nature of them for everything that you just mentioned. So if, if someone listening does have to have one, they're required to have some type of system, right? Some type of system like that. Everybody should have a system, but some type of system like that. What are some easy kind of ways that they can have it, but also be mindful of the social emotional learning that needs to be attached with it. So, and I, I say this with so many caveats, because if I had my way, if I Elizabeth ruled the world, I would burn them all, like all of them. Um, digital, print, I would burn them all. All the point systems would be gone. That being said, I realize we don't live in a vacuum and I realize I don't rule the education world. So sometimes you actually have to follow what your boss or your district says, right? And especially with PBIS, the way that it's implemented in a lot of districts, you have to have some sort of scoring system attached to behavior, which carries its own lovely list of things, negative impacts. But that being said, I want you to stay an educator and keep your job. So as much as possible, keep it private. So you don't run around going, well, this child's not reading on grade level. That's not something you would blast to other people. That's not something that if I took a picture of your classroom and you posted it on social media, because a lot of school divisions do that, I should be able to see their reading levels behind you, right? And a lot of times these behavior charts are big and they're flashy and I'm going to make it look pretty so the kids are engaged with it. But the problem with that is now it's big and it's flashy and the kids are engaged with it all the time. So keeping it as private as possible is great. Um, the other thing is always following up, just like with reading. And I like to kind of combine them because like I mentioned at the beginning, it's teaching skills. So just like you teach reading skills, social emotional skills are not innate. They're things that are developed over time. They're not part of our survival brain. They're part of our higher level thinking. And so they really have to be developed with intentionality. So when I'm thinking about reading, I'm going, wow, this kid needs help with decoding. So I'm going to help what's specific spot in decoding let's not just stop there let's dig deeper into that skill what do they need more help with and we need to do the same for that social emotional skill so yes okay I had to move that kid to yellow on my private chart that I've got going on and please for the love of education turn the ding off of your dojo if that's something your school's forcing you to use because it is like Pavlov's dogs walking down the hallway and that little ding goes off and they just you know talk about the the school to prison pipeline, they're walking down that hall like they're in prison. And the second that thing happens, they all tense. I mean, whew, it's hard to watch. 
So turn that off. <laughs> but if you have to mark them down, make a little notation for yourself. Hey, I need to work on this skill. And then follow up with that conversation. How are you actually teaching that skill? And I know at least for elementary, a lot of our report cards have things that tie into social emotional skills and we're not effectively grading those. So you'll have stuff like work study habits, productivity, collaboration, citizenship. You'll have those soft skills, if you will, on your report card and teachers just kind of brush it off like, yeah, yeah, I'm grading what they're doing, but you're grading without assessing them appropriately or providing support and skill instruction. If it's on that report card, you need to take the time to, to address that skill. I would never just go, oh, this kid doesn't know how to read. Can you imagine a daughter, if she went to school, if Abby went to school and her teacher just went, oh, I'm going to mark you down because you can't read, mm -hmm. but never provided any instruction in reading, we would be up in arms. And so if we're going to assess a child in behavior, which is essentially social emotional skills, we better be providing that instruction. And so that data that you're taking is great formative assessments, just like we do for reading and math, for you to go, wow, my class is really struggling with this. Let me see, this group really needs this. Let's have a small group. Let's pull in our counselor. Let's pull in a, a parent volunteer. Let's pull in, um, hey, this teacher across the hall, you're also having some kids with, um, I don't know, right emotion regulation. Let's have a small group of those. Oh, this, these fifth graders have been really working on that. Let's have another small group with men, with these um, little boys that are really hard, you know, having a hard time with it. Let's have some big boys from fifth grade just to have that, you know, mentorship happening. So there's ways to take that data that's private, then use it. If you're going to take that data, it is not for public shaming. It's not something you're yelling out. I'm not going to yell out, hey, we got that word wrong during small group. But you'll hear teachers across the room, go turn your card, Abby. And that doesn't make sense. And so making it a private thing where you are using it for instructional purposes to communicate what is known or not known is the way to go. So if you shift your mindset from, I'm just using this to make classroom management versus what skills am I instructing and how am I using this for my instruction is really the crux that, like you mentioned at the very beginning, that mindset shift from, I'm doing this to have a calm, compliant classroom to I'm having this to have a welcoming, supportive learning classroom. Absolutely. I love that you make so many connections between the behavior and academics. Um, I do the same thing in trainings because people get it. It makes sense. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I love that example of you're right. We don't we don't shout out or if a, if a student got a math problem wrong. I'm not going to say, how dare you get that wrong? What were you thinking? Go practice it again and do it right. But if and a student- a note for their parent. Let me right. write that down in your folder for your parent to sign that you got two plus two is wrong. I'm not going to instruct you any further on that, but I'm just going to write it down so your parent after a long day at work can deal with that later when you guys are both tired, cranky, and at your capacity. Right, right. But we do it, we <laughs> do we it with it. behavior. Yeah, I, I used an example today uh, one of the things that, you know, is a, something I'm working at in my, where in my current district is reducing the length of time students have behavior plans. Okay. Because we're, I noticed, I did a little study of my own and I noticed that there are students that have them are not discontinuing them. They are having them. I'm like, okay, we got to figure out why. So I'm doing all of that. And I was talking about it today and I, and I got up, not, not pushed back, I got just some questions, which is great. Like, let's have a conversation about it. And I, the moment I, I related it to academics, I said, so, cause I said, I gave it a six month time frame. I said in six months, we should be able to discontinue this specific plan. 
should be even less than that, but I was given a little buffer. I said, if a student was challenged or struggling in math for six months, you would not keep doing it for two years, or I hope we would not, but we do it for behavior, right? If a student can't read after six months, we don't say, well, we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing. They have a plan. It's not working. We're just going to keep going with it. It's the same thing. If we are not seeing that forward movement to where the student is learning a new skill. And I love that that's really what we keep coming back to is it really does not matter the system you are using. There's got to be some way to track it, but it's more about, I would rather you put your energy into teaching the lacking skill, the skill deficit, because that's what's going to change future behavior. It's it's like you said, and you you were the one that sent me the book, Punish Better Rewards. And when I first read it, I was mad. Like we had a, I was, you know, I was like, what is this, right? It was kind of, in, in initially reading it, I was like, this is everything against what I just learned. But when I read it kind of with a clear view, I was like, it's really not. What I had been taught had not been taught clearly to see the difference, right? And so I loved it because it opened my eyes to um, just different options, right? I am not, I still make individualized plans with rewards because some kids need it, but that some is a much smaller number. And you always start, there's a key that I think you, and you just touched on a little bit. You always have a plan for extinguishing it. Yeah. You don't start with an unlimited time frame or un, like we're going to do this forever. Right. You begin with the end in mind. Your goal is to have that child doing that skill independently, regardless of who is there, regardless of the situation or the environment. You want them to have that mastery of that skill in school with their teachers, with, with their peers and outside of school. You're not relying on the specific controlled environment with the specific controlled reinforcers. You're going, this child is, you know, way over here on what's expected. Why? Let's fix it. This is how we're going to fix it. And this is where we're going. So you have that full big picture plan, which I think makes a huge difference. You know, it's not just, I'm going to constantly give them Starburst and don't get me started on food as rewards because I will, you know, <laughs> but it, it is, I think that that makes a big difference when you have that end in mind already where you want to end it. And to your point of teachers having the same or children still having that same skill on their plan for a very long time. I have found that a lot of times when that's occurring, it's because people don't realize developmentally where kids should be. And so we have a very high expectation, especially surrounding things that are compliance based. So when they have to have goal setting and goal attainment, you know, breaking that big goal into little pieces, those are all different SEL skills. When they have to have impulse control, when they have to be able to have conflict resolution and all the, the broken down components of conflict resolution, we get so annoyed when our kids can't do it. Oh, I showed you once, I read that book, I told you what our you know expectations were, but it takes repetitive. You know, We don't get mad when a baby doesn't learn how to say ball because we realize that developmentally their mouth and brains aren't there, but it doesn't mean we stop doing it, right? We still, we talk to them, we teach them until developmentally we're, they're ready. And sometimes we over mature our kids and we expect to be able to do more and I think part of the problem especially teachers have the same grade level too long we remember the end of the of the school year Mm -hmm. and then we get a reset and you have to remember like I taught kindergarten for the last several years and so at the end of the year a lot of my kids are six right they're almost seven most of them are six some of them are almost seven the beginning of the year I always have 
sprinkling of kids that are still four mm -hmm. and very early fives. They're 60 months old. They are less than a car loan. And so what they can do at six is a much different skill set and developmental milestones, maturity level than what they could do at five. And so Yes, our patients might be short at the beginning of the school year. We've done all that training and we've moved around our classroom and we've had no air conditioning while we were doing it. We're stressed and yada, yada, all those things, but there's still four just turned five, right? And so that goes K-12, that goes through college, you know, realizing developmentally and even within that range of typical, you're going to have people on both ends of that spectrum because we're humans. Mm -hmm. And so realizing, and I, I like to think of it as the stems, right? So if you played it way back in the day, you had like the little bars, right? The status bars to tell you, like, are they hungry? Do they need to sleep? Like what's going on? And so you would look at all those varieties and this goes right back to what you talked about with mindsets and all the different facets of it. Like you can twist things and see them from different angles. Each kid in your class has a different status bar. And so they might be mature in one skill, whether it's academics. And if you notice your kids with super high academics, a lot of times you're really low in some of those social emotional skills and that's okay because they're taking so much of their power, their brain power and their body power and to build that skill up, maybe they're a little lower. Maybe your athletic kids are a little higher in athletics because they've got that body maturity, but maybe they don't have that SEL maturity yet. So really looking at, you know, where they are and all those different status levels makes it easier to think of like, what skill should I be working on for this kid and like breaking it down. So a lot of times when I see those longer term behavior plans that are going on a little too long, it's because either they don't have, the grownups don't have the right idea for developmentally where kids should be, um, or they're really not breaking the skill down enough. Like I'm going to teach you this big attaining goals kind of skill, but I'm not going to take the time to break that down into all the components that make that up. And really, I don't fault teachers hundred percent for that because like you mentioned, how often are we taught that in right. school, right? Like it, yeah, yeah. so I kind of fault the teacher prep program. I know. I know it's one of those when people say like, what's your big, like audacious goal? And like, it's to redesign teacher prep programs because, yes. you know, I always use the domino analogy, right? If we don't ever, if we don't get to the first domino, the yes. dominoes are going to keep on falling. So, and, and that, I love that analogy in the classrooms too. So often with behaviors, we go to like, what was the immediate trigger? And that like, I'm not down, like you need to figure that part out. But then I'm going to ask you, and what was the trigger to that? And what was the trigger to that? Yes. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> to that? What's the setting event to that? And what's that? Because until we get to that first domino, that's why so often you just say like, you know, it worked for a couple of days and then it didn't. Right. It worked for a couple of days. Your dominoes were up, but then that first domino happened again and whoosh, all of your progress gets done because we didn't figure out the first domino. When you think of education in general, to me, I mean, there, there, yes, there's systems, there's government, there's politics, there's all that. I'm, I don't want to go there. That's not in my audacious dream. My audacious dream is let's reinvent, let's refine teacher prep programs. Let's do mindset courses. Let's do limiting beliefs. Let's do why. Let's do your mission. Let's do, you know, behavior transformation. Let's do child development like times 10. Oh, yes. <laughs> because that has such an impact the pedagogy you use because that's always going to change as we learn more about the brain right but if you have a deeper understanding of how kids bodies and brains are developing for what we currently know and as we add in all those teaching components or those curriculum pieces we're mandated to do it makes it easier to kind of mold those to what we know about the humans in front of us for sure Absolutely. All right. So we've covered kind of our, our thoughts on external systems. So now someone's listening, like, okay, but what do I do? Right? Like, where do I go? 
So let's go there. What is your, when you think of SEO, when you think social emotional learning, what, how do you define it? Like, what is it, what is your kind of brain? Like, how do you best understand it? Absolutely. So Castle's always a great resource. So that's C-A-S-E-L dot org. They're always a great resource. And I, I like to caution people because, you know, we mentioned at the very beginning that, you know, it's a buzzword that's getting a lot of attention right now. And some people don't like hassle and that's okay. Social emotional learning has been around. I literally just did an Instagram post about this since like ancient Greek and Roman times. So this is not new, um, but they just do a great job of giving a common language for educators to be able to use. And they break it down into five core competencies areas, um, just so that we can have the same language, right? Um, and I think that's really important because when you're a lesson planner, you're, you're talking with the people at your school and you're saying, hey, I really want to work on this skill or that skill. And you sit down in these um, IEP meetings or things like that, you can have a better um, idea of what to say and have like a better understanding of what everybody's working on. So the way Castle breaks it up is into the, the five basics, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. And most things I've encountered, I don't want to say all because you know how those, you know, big words go, but most of them that I've encountered can fall under one of those five, sometimes under multitude of those five. So I like to try and break them down as, as deep as I can, just like you would, again, with like reading, right? When a kid encounters a word that they don't know, I want to know, and what tools are they already using? Do they know the sounds of all the letters in there? Are they having trouble because they don't even know the letters that are in there? Is it because they can't form it? Is it a speech issue? You know, like really looking at all those components and can they not hear it appropriately? Um, are they not seeing it appropriately? Do we need to look at glasses? Those are all the things that we kind of look at in a kindergarten classroom, right? We, we look at a ton of things. Um, and the same needs to hold true for behavior. So when I have a kid that's maybe having a lot of interpersonal conflict, there's so many things that could be underlying with that. And so that's where those observational skills really like really start. So when teachers go, hey, I want to move away from the chart, one of the very first things I, I say is to identify the problem. And you kind of touched on that already with going all the way back to that first domino. And observation is like the best way to do that. And a lot of teachers will go, well, I don't have time to do that. And so my my pushback on that is how much time are you wasting with these little fires? So it I, I use the analogy of prime before you paint. And I literally just repainted my daughter's bedroom. We were talking about that. Both of our girls wanted pink and I finished mine. I'll send you the color. It's super cute. Um, but if you don't prime before you paint, you're going to end up painting a lot more, right? So if you're painting on straight drywall, for example, it's just going to soak it up. It's going to be splotchy. It's going to look horrible. You're wasting your time. But if you take that time to prep the room and prime the room, things will turn out a lot better. And the same holds true when it comes to things like behavior management. If you're taking the time to see what skills are missing and you're taking the time to observe, and it doesn't have to be formal observation. I'm not saying bring in your assistant principal and bring in your counselor and bring in your behavior. No, no, no. Literally just watch while they're engaging with each other. When they get water from the water fountain, eat lunch with your kids. <gasps> I know, I actually do that. Um, so that you can watch them uh, run down to PE if they're in with a specialist, you know, because once you start to, to support the skills in a developmentally appropriate way and they can interact in the classroom in a developmentally appropriate way with their peers, then you're going to have a lot less little fires popping up in your classroom that you have to manage while you're doing things like small group instruction or whatever. So then you actually have more instructional time. I promise. I promise. So it, it's a lot more time at the front end, but let's be real. When we're talking September, October, everything takes a lot more time. Mm -hmm. So if we put our time in the, the, the best um, return on investment, so, so to speak, mm -hmm. then you'll get more time in the back end. 
And so I always take that time at the front end. And if I have a kid that my antenna keeps popping up, I'm like, oh, I'm saying their name an awful lot of times. I really try and stop and look and I go, okay, which one of those five categories are we looking at for that repeated behavior? And you can use, um, I like to recommend looking at some of those um, antecedent behavior consequence charts. There's a plethora of them. So if you just Google them and again, not for formality. And I want to make that very clear because when you're doing a formal observation, you, there's in a lot of districts, different paperwork and people involved. But this is just for you as the teacher. So instead of using a card chart, instead of using a card chart, you're now using that ABC chart, that antecedent behavior consequence to kind of get your mind thinking on how can I support that skill? Almost like a running record, right? It's not a formal reading assessment. But you're doing that to kind of go, where are they messing up at? Where, where do I need to kind of touch base on this again? And so using that, just, you know, carry it with you. Have a clipboard, have an index card. It doesn't have to be fancy pants, you know, like just put it on your lanyard and make little notes that you understand so that you can go back and go, wow, they're always having trouble at X time. Um, or they're always having trouble with this type of skill. Let's let's dig more deeply into that. Um, so that's really where I have people start is digging deeply into what that skill is. And mm -hmm. I like to frame it in Castle quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of books on SEL that you can, I mean, there's constant learning on that as, as you know, humans go and develop. Um, but definitely, definitely check out Castle just to have a good framework. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're so right. Like there are, there is, there's no shortage of strategies, right? There's no shortage of resources. Again, I, one search I'm sure gives you millions in like less than a second, but I love, I love that, that recommendation because it gives you that framework, right? It gives you that kind of framework to begin with so that you're not like, well, where do I even begin? Right. Like, yeah, that could be overwhelming, right? We've all heard that before, right? Where we can't even make a decision because there's so many options. So break it into these five pillars and then really see where is the challenge, right? Which one, where's the skill deficit? That's really where it's coming from because we're not, you know, guys listening, behavior is, is fulfilling an unmet need. Like that's why they're engaged in the behavior. They're solving a problem they're having because they don't know how to solve it in a different way. Humans are humans. We want to do things fast and easy. <laughs> well, if, if you think about it for littles, you talked about your daughter overgeneralizing, you know, red and yellow, meaning one thing on a behavior chart, but meaning something else on the zones of regulation. Kids overgeneralize. We know that. It's so sweet and cute when they overgeneralize and mess up grammatical rules, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it's, it's just endearing, but they're going to do that with behaviors as well. So something that might be acceptable in their home, I'm just going to take an easy one. Leaving the bathroom door open, like how often at the beginning of the kindergarten year is that bathroom door open? Because at home, the parent wants to make sure they're not getting into stuff and, and clogging the toilet. At school, I don't need to see what's under your underwear. Okay. <laughs> and so we shut the door. So they're gener overgeneralizing that hey, when I go to the bathroom, I leave the bathroom door open. At school, that's not an acceptable behavior. And so they even need those very simple, you know, reminders and cues. So maybe if they have a lot of siblings and they're used to roughhousing because that's how they show love and affection, they get to school and that's how they do it. That behavior is not acceptable. Well, they don't have an alternative. They don't know how else to engage because that's what was acceptable, especially, you know, talking about coming back to school after school closures. Um, if that is, the way that they've done schooling, they've done, you know, maybe they did their learning sitting on their couch in their jammies, or they were able to get up and walk around and do whatever. Um, we have to take that into account that those behaviors might not just be like negative or they're missing a skill. It could just be an overgeneralized kind of idea as well. Like, wait a minute, okay, 
this environment, we do this. In this environment, we do that. Um, so they can understand it's not a wrong behavior, but it's the wrong environment for the behavior. Mm -hmm. yeah, I never want to say what they do at home is wrong. Right. It, it's that environment. It just doesn't fit this environment. Yep, absolutely. All right, so I want to make sure. So if somebody has, maybe they've identified it, you know, they've identified it's one, you know, what the area is, what the skill deficit is, and then maybe they're not sure where to go look for ideas, right? Because I think there is a blend of both natural embodiment, um, you know, uh, embedding it just into your day-to-day -day interactions. And then there's also instruction, right? There's also teaching pieces. Um, and so do you have any recommendations or, or what you do when you're in the classroom and you're like, okay, this student really struggles with, um, I don't know, sharing, I don't know, like peer, peer interaction. Um, what, what resources you use to, to help kind of at least start the, okay, let's start with this. Well, the very first thing I always do, if it's something that I haven't had experience with, so, you know, I have very common ones in, in kindergarten that we do all the time, but if it's something where I'm like, ooh, I haven't encountered that one yet, the very first thing I do is I partner with my guidance counselor, because 99% of the time there's going to be somebody in your building or in your division that is employed for this kind of reason, right? And so even if you're in a smaller district, you might share um, school counselor. Um, I know each division kind of calls them something different. So school counselor or guidance counselor, behavior intervention specialist, um, find out who is in your division can be a resource to you. And not just, you know, obviously talk to your mentor teachers. If you have somebody on a grade level that's been doing it a lot longer, they might, you know, be a little bit more well-versed in some of those developmental things. But for sure, find out in your district who might be able to partner with you. They might have a great book they can recommend. They might go, hey, I have a lesson for that. I was going to do it next month, but I can do it this month. Or, hey, I was looking actually for, you know, buddies to have first and fourth grade hang out together and really work on those skills. I'll add your kiddo to that. So reaching out to those people in your division um, that already shoulder some of that responsibility because it'll give you more expertise within your, your classroom. So, um, there's always a lot of books. I love I love responsive classroom. Um, I love conscious discipline. Those are some of my go-tos all the time um, for any skills that I need or any just like family. We talk about relationships. So um, really, I say family because I also do parent classes. <laughs> but um, on relationship building within the classroom. So um, whether it is specific skills or relationship buildings, both of those are great resources for you to use. But again, making sure within your division, you're also looking at who you can go to for help, um, especially because if it's something that you're not comfortable with, you're probably stressed. And one of the, the biggest things when it comes to social emotional is that co-regulation piece. And so if you're really elevated, it's going to be really hard for that, that child to be able to remain in a regulated state. I'm doing the hand motion. I know your listeners can't see that, but the whole idea of lid flipped and making sure that that lid's in place, um, check out whole brain child for that one. Um, but it's going to be hard for them to be regulated if you are so, um, and I, I hate to use the overuse word, triggered with it, but if you are so upset with their behavior and you feel like you're at your wit's end and you're stressed about it and you're upset about it, even if you think you're masking, you're not. 
Mm-hmm. And so reach out to those people that might have a little bit more expertise in those areas so that they can give you either ideas or come help support until you go, oh, wow, okay, now I get it and, and get that different perspective from them. Oh, I love it so much. And I love that, you know, it really then, it really inspires collaboration, right? Mm-hmm. Community connection, which again, are amazing things to model for our students, right? I didn't know the answer. I wasn't sure what to do. So I went and I asked for help. And now together, we're going to provide my class or our class, you know, what it is that so we can work on. Um, so many amazing things. I will make sure to put those links um, to those different areas. Um, I have used all of them. So absolutely. Um, and I love, I love them all because it still gives flexibility. It's not so scripted that it's do this, say this, you're, here you go. Um, because we know, especially with behavior, you've got to individualize it a little bit, use examples, change your language based on who's in your classroom, right? Based on the needs of your students. If anybody ever says they have a prescriptive step-by-step flow chart on what exactly needs to take place in order to help, and lots of air quotes here, manage the behavior to get those kids under control, run, don't walk, run away from whatever system they're trying to sell you because they're trying to sell you on something. And we're humans, like we're, we're humans. And so there's not going to be one thing, just like with reading instruction, just like with math instruction, there is not going to be one thing that is going to work for every human because that Sims bar, you know, like they're, they're not going to need one thing. So it's really important that instead of having the prescription for what we do with our kids or to our kids or in our classroom, we have the basic idea of what overall kids are made up of, because we know so many other things can impact them, trauma, their environment, whether they're hungry, whether they're tired, all of these things, what skills they already have, they can impact so much. And then there goes that little prescription right out the window. Mm-hmm. And so it's really like, if, if somebody tells you they've got the 10 step program that's going to turn around your classroom, put that money back towards your student loans and walk away from that person. Just go, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Elizabeth Merce told me no. I love it. I love it so much. Oh my goodness. I think we could talk for hours on this topic. I know we could. Um, We will definitely have to do a part two because I think we could just go so, so deep into this. But I love, I think for for even for for new people listening, you know, newer teachers as well as veteran teachers, I know they're going to take so much away from this as I have. So thank you so much for sharing um, what I know is a big passion of yours. Um, if people want to connect further with you, what's the best place for them to do that? I am um, very active on Instagram and Facebook. Um, not as much as I used to be on Twitter, but I am still over there. So if you're doing a cool Twitter chat, definitely tag me in. But I'm in all of those places at Emerced with a B, learning, get it, play on words. Um, <laughs> e like Elizabeth, Merced learning. Um, and I know Lindsay will have that up in the show notes as well. So, and I love connecting and learning from new educators. So feel free to reach out, introduce yourself to me. I'd love to get to know what you're doing in your classroom too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I've had a blast and um, it's been a great way to uh, end this Thursday. So thank you so much. Um, For listeners, stay tuned um, for next week. There'll be another brand new episode. But if you loved this episode, please do us a favor. Go on and rate, review, subscribe, and share it out. Make sure to tag us in it so that we can uh, say thank you. Um, We want to get the word out to as many educators as we can. So we appreciate you doing the same. And uh, until next week, keep on loving who you are, owning who you are, trusting who you are. Those will help you define who you are each and every day. I'll see you guys next week. Have fun.